As we have been working through Acts this past summer, we are doing a new series called Transformed. And uh, we find ourselves on the topic today of transform courage. Um, it's kind of funny. I thought about this, this passage of scripture in Acts chapter 6 and 7. I really, I realized I like to skip over this passage of scripture because it makes me uncomfortable. When I was a little girl, um, a lot of, I think a lot of fears came up in me this past week as I was reading this passage because if you know your Bible, if you don't, I'll just, we'll be talking about it, but it's about um, the story of Stephen. And one of my biggest fears when I was really like a little was that I was going to be sent to the mission field and I was going to be a martyr and die for Jesus. And I, I remember I had nightmares, like one solid summer of my life that I was like, being killed because I because of Jesus and I it just brought up a lot of like old fears that I had and um this past or this next week I'm going to be speaking up at a Bible camp up in northern Minnesota actually leave today and it's it's not too far from Canada where I'm going to but um but it was really funny I I talked to my counselor at Bible camp about this and it was really reassuring what she said to me and just about the courage that Jesus gives us as we follow him and so I feel excited to finally preach on this and not avoid this, this topic, but it's really on courage and on the life of Stephen. Um, so I just pray today as, as we think about the topic of courage, that the Lord will meet you where you're at and, and whatever you need in this area of courage for your life. But the good news is when we, when we go to God's word, we have so many examples of people that have gone before us that the Lord filled with what they needed when they needed it. And that's such a good reminder that God doesn't leave us alone. Um, and I, I, feel, I feel encouraged for that and I pray that for you this morning as well. Um, if you look on the screen, we're gonna turn to Acts chapter six and what we'll be doing is we'll be um, reading the first part of this story, and we're not going to read all of chapter 7. Chapter 7 is really interesting because it, it gives a, a whole overview, Stephen's discourse of defending himself, but really defending where God's people had been. But we're going to stay in 6 and then um, and, and expound on that. So in Acts chapter 6, verse 1, the choosing of the seven. So we have this like backstory in those days, and this is after, after the resurrection, after Pentecost, as the church grew and followers of the way, that's what they were called, following Jesus the way. It says that the number of disciples was increasing. And the Hellenistic Jews, and that is, um, you know, there's differing viewpoints on who the Hellenistic Jews were. They Gentile, Gentile Jewish people? Were, um, were they Greek-speaking Jewish people? Were they culturally um, Greek, but they were really Jewish? There's a lot of uh, dispute about that. But anyway, they were Greek-speaking Jews. We're going to go there. And among them, they complained against the Hebraic Jews, which were the um, Hebrew-speaking Jews, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And this relates to how widows were supposed to be cared for. Widows and orphans, if you were, if you were impoverished to where you did not have a spouse to care for you, um, you were cared for by the community, which is really beautiful of how we do this community together as Christians. We care for each other. We look after each other. But there was a distinction and some prejudice, probably because the the Hebrew-speaking Jews um, somehow had some privilege that the Greek-speaking Jews didn't. So there was a complaint. So the 12 apostles get together, we're in verse 2, and they said, it's not right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables, which kind of cracked me up because I thought about how many, how many meals I have slept and served in my time of life 
and, and they're having this dispute of who's going to go give the sermons and preach and who's going to go and serve food pretty much. But this is the beautiful thing of, of how we honor each other. It means that there's nothing that's lowly or, or higher or lower. It's that they're both equal and they both need equal attention. So they, so they say, brothers and sisters, to seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. So the 12 apostles kept doing what they were doing, but they chose seven, seven men who had been with Jesus. And so the proposal pleased the group. We're in verse five. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed on them and laid their hands on them. In verse 7, so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So it means that it was expanding now into the synagogue and outside of the community. And then we have verse 8. Now Stephen, we come back to Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. So obviously he was filled up with God's spirit and God was working with him not only to, to meet the needs of the food distribution and feed the widows and the people who were in need, but God gave him the ability to do things and maybe healing. Um, we don't know what that was. But it says, opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. And this is where, as I was reading in commentaries, that you think about this. When God is doing something in you um, and he is filling you up, it's pouring out people notice. And so obviously there was things happening with Stephen and what God was doing through him that he wasn't just flying under the radar. People were taking note. And in verse 10, it says, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. So obviously, it wasn't just that he was serving, but he was speaking and telling. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling council. Think back to Jesus got pulled in front of the Sanhedrin. Jesus got accused of speaking against Moses and against the law. So it's kind of the same, same thing happening all over again. They produced false witnesses. Remember, Jesus had false witnesses against him who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So as we pause here, um, it's really important to think about, like, why did Stephen get in trouble? That's, I, that was something that I really never thought about. You know, we have this, this story, and then in, in chapter 7, we, we have this long discourse that we're not going to read today, but you could read if you want later. But it's like, why did he get in trouble? What was he doing wrong? He was, he was doing good things. He was taking care of the widows. He was feeding people. He was obviously encouraging people to follow Jesus. And it sounds like the church was growing, but what did he get in trouble for? Why was he pulled in front of the Sanhedrin? And so commentators say that he, um, he, spoke, he spoke words that Jesus said. Remember, and if you know your Bibles, Jesus said that, that he was going to tear down the temple in three days, which was referring to his resurrection, and that the, the people who would worship him would worship in spirit and in truth. And so he got everybody mad because he had basically said 
that the place where you came to worship God was not just in the temple. And he spoke against the customs of Moses, pretty much saying you don't have to maybe be circumcised to be included in God's people. You just have to follow Jesus. And so we have to think about this, that um, Stephen was not afraid of it, meaning of, of proclaiming Christianity. And we think about how Paul, which we learned about a little bit um, a week or two ago, but they stand on the threshold of Christian history because um, they identify themselves with Jesus and they also risk their lives proclaiming to all that it is not the temple that saved. It was Jesus who saved and that's why he got in trouble. And these are the, the temple, and, and it's kind of like coming to church here. Like I, I like to always say, just, just because you sit in a chair doesn't make you a chair. Just because you go into church doesn't mean that all of a sudden you're a church. It's, it's that we come to this place. We come to a place that's set apart and made holy and special because Jesus is here with us. The risen Christ is here with us. And so Stephen got in trouble because he was, he was saying what Jesus said. He said, you don't have to go to the temple. That going to the temple doesn't make you a follower of Jesus. Going to the temple doesn't make you good with God. It's that you come and you be with people who love him, but he has to be inside of you. And this is the, the main point of his courage. He said, he spoke the truth that Jesus is the one who saves. And so we think, have to think about how will we grow and adjust as the Holy Spirit leads us to reach out to people outside of this place with the same message. We have, to follow, we have to follow that. Jesus said he is the one who saved. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And so two really important things um, come about for him. It's that he, um, I was thinking about this too, that he stood up against two things that are really, really important. They were important to the Jewish people, and I think they kind of butt up against us now as Americans. Um, nationalism and traditionalism. He was accused of blasphemy Moses. This is an offense against nationalism. He was, he, the, the combined offense was um, apparent enough that Jesus got in trouble with for it too, and they wanted to put him to death. He attacked two precious things. He attacked the Holy Land and the temple. And the thing that we have to realize is God has not confined his actions to a patch of land. Just like um, how, people, how people think, well, there's maybe one place where, where God will be. And I think the people of Israel had this where they were trying to um, make a temple, a place where God's presence could dwell. But really, God's presence dwells inside of us. Stephen attacked two precious things. Um, he attacked um, how, what they believed about um, their nationality and about how they worshipped. As far as the temple was concerned, the Old Testament itself showed that the tabernacle antedated it and was built by divine instruction. God gave instructions to the people of, of how they could come and worship him and find a place that was set apart. And Stephen, in other words, as this commentator says, was trying to cut Christianity loose from its national swaddling clothes. He saw that Christianity was bigger than any nation and that Judaism could not contain it. But in making such claims, he ran straight into the sorest spots imaginable. And people cling to national shrines and monuments as though that were life itself. And, and so I think that's a, a caution for us too, even here and now, is, is, is Jesus the bigger thing for me? Or is, um, and I think this pushes up against us as Americans. How do we define ourselves? Do we identify ourselves first as Christ followers? And then, and this is where I went to a couple weeks ago, is don't let your politics define you. Let Jesus define you. And that's what Steve was, was pushing into. I wrote down here, what do I cling to that keeps me from growing and spreading the gospel? And the gospel could not be contained to the temple, and that was really what Stephen got in trouble for. 
kind of interesting. I thought about like our constitution and this commentator wrote, it's not the, con like for us as Americans, you know, we have our constitution that we live by and that our, our laws are, um, are founded from. And it's important to think about the constitution itself that is not the ultimately valuable thing, but the spirit of the constitution that it may be preserved at all costs. And that spirit may under new circumstances rise up and break through. And, and you think about with like slavery, for instance, it was, are all men created equal? And that was how um, Abraham Lincoln was so brave and courageous and fought for, if our constitution says all people are created equal, then why does this not reflect in our laws and our land? And so as we think about Jesus, and we think about how he was, he was working and growing within the church, it was very clear that um, Stephen spoke truth. He said, Jesus is in our hearts. He's not just in this place. Come and follow him. And, and obviously Stephen um, showed Jesus. He, he identified himself with Jesus. He even said things like Jesus said, which got him in trouble of saying that Jesus would destroy this place and change the customs handed down to us by Moses. And it's clear from this opposition to Stephen that the young man had caught the spirit of his master, Jesus. And Jesus, from the beginning, assumed that the truth was continually and everlasting revealing itself. Jesus is the truth, the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, which is, again, why Stephen got himself in trouble. And Jesus gives us courage as we look to him, just like um, Rory so eloquently said, Jesus gives strength and Jesus gives courage. First of all, Jesus, his spirit lives within us, and that is what embodies and empowers us to go out and tell other people. And so Stephen did a really brave and courageous thing. He, he aligned himself with Jesus. Um, he spoke things that were true, and it, it ultimately got him in trouble. And, and I think that's where I, I got squirmy when I was younger and I read this passage. I'm like, when it comes right down to it, am I going to have the courage that I need to say things that are true? Am I going to have the courage to align myself more with Jesus than with anything else or anybody else in this world? And that's where we come to our next slide when we think about Stephen's example to us is that when Jesus transforms us and when we have transformed faith, the Holy Spirit fills ordinary people with extraordinary courage. However, in whoever Stephen was, it was the Holy Spirit that gave him the, the boldness to go be, before the Sanhedrin. I bet that was a scary group of dudes to go against. You know, they probably had their robes. They probably looked really intimidating. Stephen obviously knew that things were going to change for him the moment he opened his mouth and, and declared himself with Jesus. And really, the way that Jesus was showing how to do things was that it was not um, through circumcision. It was not through obeying all the religious laws. It was not through all those things that they thought made them good with God. It was that saying, I let Jesus be Lord in my life. I receive his forgiveness, and I let the Holy Spirit come in and make me a new creation. That's how it works. And the Holy Spirit did that for Stephen. In the next slide, I, I want you to think about how when Jesus transforms us, he takes the things that we're most afraid of too, and this is where God is still working in me, and he transforms our fear to courage. Um, you know, it's funny, I'm terribly afraid of heights, and um, apart from getting married to my husband here, like I was terrified of marriage. My parents were divorced. Um, I was, I remember, <laughs> you'll say this too, when we had premarital counseling, I just sobbed. I don't remember anything our pastor said to us because I cried the whole time. It was, it was really like alarming because I, I mean, and it was like, you know, the ugly, ugly cry, ugly tears. And I realized I was terrified of marriage because I was terrified of failure. It's probably one of my bigger things in life is fear of failure, fear of screwing up. My next biggest fear, though, is heights. And a couple years ago, my daughter and I were in Alaska. And 
we were with a group of friends that are quite adventurous, and I, I heard, let's go hike Mount Marathon. I'm like, I like to hike. I mean, I'm active. I didn't hear, let's go climb Mount Marathon. And all of a sudden, we're at the top of Mount Marathon, and I realized where I'm at. We had just gone up this switchback that was like on this shale ledge, and I absolutely freaked out. Like, I would have been so humiliated to have all of you there and seeing what happened. But I'm just going to tell you because I can tell on myself. But I had a meltdown. I got to the top. I was shaking. I was in all-out, like, freak-out mode, head between my knees, deep breathing. And I'm also a therapist, so if some of you don't know this, I'm also a therapist. And I was saying, I'm doing exposure therapy to myself right now. And, and I told my friends they needed to call a helicopter to come get me. Um, it was our friends, Alan Robin. And they're like, there's no helicopter coming to get you, Carrie. You have to go down. And I had to confront probably my, my second biggest fear other than marriage was going down that mountain because I, I had nightmares my whole life that I was going to fall, you know, down something high. And, and what got me down was um, our friends Robin and Al. Actually, and Robin is going to be leading worship here at the end of August, so you get to meet them. You can, if you want to ask the story of how they experienced my freak out on Mount Marathon, they can tell. But what got me down was Al went down each switchback Al went down and he stood and he said, Carrie, if you fall, I'm going to catch you. He said, if you, if you fall, I'm not going anywhere. And he anchored himself down. And then Robin was behind me and she said, Carrie, I'm going to walk behind you so you actually go down. <laughs> so that's how we made our way down. But I thought about how God took two friends who I trusted and believed in to transform my fear to faith. And actually now, I'm, clearly I'm with you. I'm, I got down off the mountain. Um, but I thought about how Jesus transforms our fears to faith when we trust him and we follow him, just like with my friend Al. You keep our eyes on him. And so th- some things I want to encourage you from as we think about Stephen and about his example to us and, and just the point of truth that we follow Jesus is that there's six types of courage that I think that we need. And the first one, um, if you're following along, is first of all, at times in our life, we're going to need physical courage. And those are those feelings of fear, yet that's when we have feelings of fear, yet we choose to act. It involves bravery at the risk of bodily harm or death. And a developing physical strength, resilience, and awareness. And I think about Stephen. Um, at the end of chapter 7, Stephen is stoned to death because he stuck with Jesus. And so he had physical courage. I, I think also in, in times of our life as parents, we need physical courage. You know, we, there's going to be times in your life where God is going gonna, is gonna to help you with something and you're not going to know how you did it. But we need physical courage. And so my prayer today is that wherever you need physical courage right now to follow Jesus or to do whatever God is calling you to do, that you will do it. Second one is we need emotional courage. And that's following our heart. The word courage comes from a Latin word core, meaning heart. And this opens us to feeling the full spectrum of emotions, pleasant and unpleasant, without attachment. And that kind of goes back to my, my telling you about being terrified of getting married. Like, my emotional courage showed when I just sobbed and blubbered through premarital counseling with our, with our pastor. And I think, too, as, as people, we, we often shut our emotions off because it's vulnerable and we don't want people to see it. We don't want people to know. Um, but I'm going to pray this week for you all that God will give you courage with your emotions, that you'll show your emotions, and you'll also let God know about how you're feeling and let him give you courage in those areas. We need intellectual courage. This expands our horizons. Let's go of the familiar. It's about our willingness to learn, unlearn, and relearn with an open and flexible mind. I, I have so much like admiration for the early followers of Christ because there was so much that they had to learn and relearn. You think about the, the Jewish followers of Christ came from, from um, Judaism and from that 
that you worship God by the Day of Atonement, that there was an animal that was killed for you, and, and then you, you hoped and you tried the whole year long to keep God's laws, and the next year around, the same animal killed for you, and then all of a sudden they're like, wait, there was one person that died for me, and it was Jesus, and I can live my life with freedom and grace and forgiveness? That took intellectual courage to go back and connect the dots of, of what Jesus said he fulfilled and who he was to God's word as they knew it. So this week, as you seek God's word, I pray that you will have intellectual courage as well, that you will keep reading God's word. That the more that we stay in this book, the more that we stay connected to each other, the more that we, we stay in prayer, God will give us the courage we need. Um, the fourth one, social courage. That means to be ourselves in the face of adversity. And we, and we have this with Stephen. Think about this. He was with his, his peers and his leaders of, of their religion. And think about ourselves right now. And even like, I'm not a social media person. If you've tried to find me on Facebook, I'm not there. You can find my husband. Um, <laughs> but even posting social media of, of things that, that identify you as a Christ follower, or maybe speaking against things that might go against the flow, it involves the risk of social embarrassment or exclusion, unpopularity or rejection. It also involves leadership. So think about this of this week. Where do you need social courage where God will meet you? And it's moral courage. Standing up for what's right involves doing the right thing even when it's uncomfortable or unpopular. And again, Stephen points us to that in this, in this passage of scripture. He stood up and he stood to be counted for with Jesus. And then we need spiritual courage. And that's facing pain with dignity or faith. It helps us live with purpose and meaning through a heart-centered approach towards all life and oneself. And that is where Jesus meets us most. I think about the people, you know, as a pastor, I've had the privilege to be with people as they were dying. And I think about the people that, that died really well. And you could see that they were so close to Jesus because he gave them that, that spiritual courage at the end of their lives. And it's really beautiful to see. And that is my, probably my biggest prayer is that I will have that spiritual courage. And I pray that for you as well. So this, this week, maybe just where you're at right now, what areas of your life do you need courage right now? With your faith? Maybe it's that um, coming back kind of like with me to this passage with, with um, Stephen in Acts chapter 6 of, you know, confronting those fears. Jesus, at the end of the day, would I, would I say yes and, and die for you? I mean, that goes back to probably my biggest fear from, from childhood. And can, is heaven and the reality of heaven and eternity so big that that's what we keep in our minds? Do you need courage for your family right now? wherever that is, whoever that is. What about relationships in your life? Children with our schools, you know, as our children get ready to go back to school, we need a lot of courage right now. With your job, maybe your job is too much. Maybe it's not enough. Maybe you're struggling with courage to do the right thing or to say something or do something that could be risky. And also, ultimately, your future. And I think about the future of our church right now in New City. Of, we need courage right now as we follow Jesus. And, and as I use this word recovery from COVID and who we are as God's people together, may you find courage and strength from, from Jesus today. The disciples were distinctive. Remember this. People recognized they had been with Jesus. I pray that you, as Jesus' disciples, will be distinctive because people see that you are with Jesus. Think about this. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection transformed the early followers of Jesus from disciples to witnesses to being on mission filled with courage from the Holy Spirit. Um, as we transition from um, sermon to um, 
to communion this morning, I just wanted to just invite you to pray this prayer of courage. And if you want to pray it silently, you can. If you want to pray it out loud with me, you can. Um, it's from Joyce Meyer. I love Joyce Meyer. She is a feisty lady. Every time I watch her, and she never changes. I was like, she just has this face that's, I don't know how old she is, but she just always looks the same. But anyway, Joyce Meyer is a courageous, feisty, strong lady who loves Jesus. And I'm um, sharing this prayer with you. So if you want to pray with me. Thank you, Lord, for filling me with courage. I can take comfort knowing that you are my helper and that I do not need to be afraid. Your word has power to set me free from the fear of failure, rejection, loneliness, trusting others, being wrong, making a mistake, not being good enough, or any other lie that the enemy tries to torment me with. I want to please you every day. And I pray that whatever I need to confront, that I will find the courage and the strength in you to do so. Lord, I trust you and know that you are greater than any fear I have. I want to live the God-ordained life that you have for me. In Jesus' name, amen. So a couple things. Um, as we go to the table together, um, just some explanation about how we do communion here at New City. As we have an open table, that means that if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are welcome at this table. Um, if you seek to love the Lord with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind, you are welcome at this table. That is um, the open, open table of communion. And, um, and that's the beautiful thing, too, about the Covenant Church and, um, and how we do communion. Um, I was reading the Blue Book a while back. If any of you have the Blue Book, the Blue Book is wonderful. But I wanted to read with you a, a little passage as we come to the table together. And it was written by Thomas Petterpiece. And, um, and the writer says, Today is Resurrection Sunday, my first Easter in prison. Surely the regime can't continue to keep almost 10,000 political prisoners in its gulls. In here, it is much easier to understand how the men in the Bible felt, stripping themselves of everything that was superfluous. I can't say the word. Sorry. Many of the prisoners have already heard that they have lost their homes, their furniture, and everything they owned. Our families are broken up. Many of our children are wandering the streets, their father in one prison, their mother in another. There is not a single cup. But a score of Christian prisoners experience the joy of celebrating communion without bread or wine. The communion of empty hands. The non-Christian said, we will will help you. We will talk quietly so that you can meet. Too dense a silence would have drawn the guard's attention as surely as the lone voice of the preacher. We have no bread, nor water to use instead of wine, I told them, but we will act as though we had. This meal in which we take part, I said, reminds us of the prison, the torture, the death, and the final victory of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The bread is the body which he gave for humanity. The fact that we have none represents very well the lack of bread and the hunger of so many millions of human beings. The wine, which we don't have today, is his blood and represents our dream of a united humanity, of a just society without difference of race or class. I held out my empty hand to the first person on the right, and placed it over his open hand, and with the same as the others, take, eat, this is my body which is given for you, do in remembrance of me. Afterward, all of us raised our hands to our mouths, receiving the body of Christ in silence. Take, drink, 
This is the blood of Christ which was shed to seal the new covenant with God, of, with, of God with men. Let us give thanks, sure that Christ is here with us, strengthening us. We gave thanks to God and finally stood up and embraced each other. A while later, another non-Christian prisoner said to me, you people have something special, which I would like to have. The father of the dead girl came up to me and said, Pastor, this was a real experience. I believe today I have discovered what faith is. Now I believe I am in the road. As I share that with you, just know that the risen Christ is with us. Um, share and know that the risen Christ is with all who are this world who are um, suffering, um, whether in, in physical being, body, mind, um, and that the body of Christ around this table is united in countless places around our world. I'm going to invite um, our presider, Kate, to come up um, with me and help me with communion today. <laughs> 